Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of the show. For today's episode, I am joined by Greg Knuckles. He is currently the permanent guest co-host for the time being. Uh, If you like the show and you'd like to support it, there are many ways you could do that. Uh, Of course, you could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you happen to access this podcast. You could join the email newsletter at Stronger by Science. Go to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter and sign up for that email newsletter. It's a really nice little resource. We send out uh, little research updates from time to time that are really quick and concise and informative. So it's a completely free resource. Be sure to check that out if you haven't yet. Uh, You could work with one of our online coaches. We have coaches who do one-on-one virtual coaching for sports nutrition and training and both. Uh, you can check that out by going to strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. You could use our discount code at bulksupplements.com. The code is SBSPOD. That gets you a 5% discount off of your entire order. You could subscribe to the Mass Research Review. Greg and I are co-authors along with Dr. Mike Zordos and Dr. Eric Helms. Every single month we put out an enormous PDF reviewing all of the most important and most useful findings from the exercise and nutrition literature from the past month or so. Every month, we typically put out uh, about 130 pages of written content, uh, usually covering at least a dozen new studies, give or take uh, two video lectures, five or six audio roundtable discussions. So it's a tremendous amount of content every single month. And when you sign up, you automatically get access to the entire archive. Uh, And that is basically six years worth of content at this point. Uh, And then finally, you can check out Macro Factor. That's the diet app that we created. uh, And it does have a free trial. So you can download it, take it for a spin, uh, and decide if you like it. Uh, All right, before we get into the content for today's episode, I do want to mention a few uh, format changes and an update about the upcoming podcast schedule. So we have two episodes left this season. You're currently listening to episode 94, and we will do episode 95, and then we're going to take our summer break. It's going to be about six weeks, give or take. Uh, and when we come back from that, uh, so the, these next two episodes and then um, you know what comes after break, we're kind of reshuffling the format of the show a little bit. This is something we've done multiple times in the past. We're kind of constantly revisiting the show and making adjustments as needed. So for episode 94 and 95, we're going to be trimming the episodes a little bit, getting closer to the like 45 minute to one hour mark. And we're also going to be reshuffling the well, segments. I mean, that, that's what we're projecting. We've we've said that before. Yeah. We'll see how long they actually turn out to be, but but... That, that is our intention. But we have a strategic approach that should facilitate that. That's kind of my next point. We are going to be reshuffling the segment selection a little bit. So instead of doing a set number of segments every single episode, we're just going to be kind of throwing them in as needed. So for example, feats of strength, typically we do it every single episode. Moving forward, we're just going to do it when there's something particularly bonkers that we feel like commenting on. Uh, But yeah, it's going to be fewer segments per episode, but the same general selection of segments that you are accustomed to. So they're going to be a little bit shorter. And uh, yeah, we we hope you'll like it. And then when we come back from summer break, I'm sure during that summer break, we'll revisit a number of other topics about how the podcast is formatted. And uh, we'll give you updates as they're available. So getting into the content for this episode, uh, 
we're going to do, I'm doing a couple Q and A's. Uh, so responding to some listener questions. And the first one I've got is actually a follow-up from last week's episode. So in last week's episode, I talked a little bit about sauna and the fact that sauna is a really fascinating uh, stimulus for, for various adaptations. Uh, the way I, I phrased it is that it can be, to some extent, a bit of an exercise mimetic where some of the physiological responses and adaptations to sauna exposure are almost like a, a very light version of kind of low-intensity physical activity. Um, but I did get a follow-up question. Uh, and by the way, if go back and listen to that episode if you want like the detailed assessment of sauna. My, my general conclusion was I wouldn't expect major health-related or performance-related benefits, but basically, you know, you might be expecting changes that are neutral to maybe slightly positive, but overall, it seems to be a very enjoyable practice that, that need not be restricted or avoided. But, you know, I, I wouldn't expect major, huge positive health benefits from sauna independently. But I got a follow-up question from a listener asking about how sauna might potentially impact recovery from exercise. And their question was basically, I've heard that sauna actually impairs recovery from exercise, and I've seen you know some research to support that. So I wanted to briefly address that because it is true that there are, as, as far as I'm aware, two acute studies reporting an impairment of recovery from acute sauna use. So basically we're talking about doing exercise, then having a single sauna session. Uh, so sauna bathing for, you know, kind of a typical finish approach where you're getting in and out maybe one or two or three times for short periods of time. Uh, and they're looking at the effect of this single sauna bathing session on recovery over the next 12 to 24 hours. So we're looking at short-term recovery with a single uh, sauna session. So one of these papers was Rassanen and colleagues. And uh, I'll link the, uh, the PubMed link in the show notes. And it is important to recognize that in this study by Rassanen and colleagues, they did report an impairment of acute recovery from exercise uh, induced by sauna. But there is a very important caveat if you open up the full text and kind of dig into the data. So they looked at a variety of different, it was a crossover trial with a bunch of different conditions. Uh, and the, the important caveat here is that the conditions were not completed in a randomized order. So the kind of control condition in this particular study design was sauna only uh, rather than sauna after a particular training bout. And for all individuals, that sauna-only kind of control condition was completed first. And then they did the other conditions after that. And if you look at the baseline values in that sauna condition, which again was always completed first, uh, the values that they saw there for the baseline outcomes were pretty much the highest across the board when you compare to all the other conditions. And again, this is a crossover trial. So it's the same exact people who are coming in to do these baseline assessments for mm -hmm. each condition. And if you have an effective washout period, and you have effective controls regarding kind of pre-visit guidelines, theoretically in a crossover trial, you should anticipate that the baseline measurements for each of these conditions ought to be approximately similar. Like that would be the ideal scenario. And if you see that that's not the case, you would say, maybe we did something 
incorrect with uh, the washout period or the pre-visit guidelines, or maybe we didn't, uh, you know, randomize these visits appropriately. We've got some kind of time-related effect, or or didn't uh, or didn't uh, adequately familiarize people with the, with the strength tests or performance tests. Yeah. So with, with a crossover trial, what you would like to see is you know, there, there's always exceptions to this, but generally speaking, you would love to see a randomized approach to study or, or to condition ordering so that people are doing these conditions in different orders so that you're not seeing effects that are totally related to the sequence in which these conditions are completed. And you would like to see that the washout period and the pre-visit guidelines are thorough enough and the familiarization is thorough enough that every time they come in for the next round of testing and they do their baseline visit again, you should hopefully see relatively similar numbers. So in this case, uh, sauna condition, that control condition was always done first uh, for all participants and the baseline values tended to be highest in that condition compared to all other visits that followed. And so, you know, looking at the data, you would say, oh, it looks like in this sauna condition, performance was impaired 24 hours later. But when you look at those, you know, impaired values 24 hours later, they were quite similar to the baseline values in all the other conditions. So it's very difficult to say after this sauna condition, you were really screwed in terms of performance because that level of performance was indicative of just showing up to the lab the other three different conditions you completed. Mm-hmm. So um, in that case, I, I don't think that it's necessarily incorrect the way that um, the, uh, you know, that, that people discuss it uh, it's not explicitly incorrect, but I think a more nuanced interpretation of that data would suggest that uh, it, it's very difficult to to use that as a very clear-cut instance of sauna impairing recovery directly. Uh, there was another study by Skorsky and colleagues, uh, and again, they found uh, acutely an impairment in exercise recovery uh, related to post-exercise sauna Uh, But this was, again, a crossover trial. Uh, And that's a really valuable thing. Like people always talk about crossover trials being a great thing. Uh, And as a researcher, sometimes you view it as great because it's just half the recruitment. You know, you can say, oh, we can do two treatments, but we only need to recruit one group or three treatments. So it is economical and efficient, but it also gives us some extra data that we can use. You know, we can look at these baseline values and get really informative observations that we can't we can't necessarily make the same exact inferences when we have independent groups yeah so if you have uh i'll, I'll just get right to the point here and, and kind of uh contextualize this a bit so in the study by skorsky and colleagues they did report an impairment of recovery but if you look at these two different conditions so there was a, a sauna condition and kind of a placebo or control condition and they did, uh, you know, exercise and, and looked at pre and post. How did how did these recovery metrics look? So they reported that there was uh, an impairment of recovery after sauna. So pre sauna to post sauna, there was an impairment. But if you look at that difference, um, it doesn't really seem to be meaningful when we contextualize it based on how different were just the baseline measurements when these same individuals showed up for the sauna treatment versus when they showed up for the control condition. So mm-hmm. like the effect size of the uh, the effect of sauna really wasn't even as large as what you would see as 
you know, the difference of just showing up for the other condition, which we assume is just kind of random variation in the the outcomes being measured, right? Mm -hmm. So specifically, the uh, baseline to baseline difference between the sauna and placebo condition was actually noticeably larger than the difference between the post sauna value and the pre placebo value. So after this sauna uh, intervention, where you'd say, wow, that was quite an impairment, the, the post sauna value really wasn't very different from just showing up the next time for the baseline testing for the control condition. So what I'm getting at here is when you have a crossover trial, you have this ability to look at, you know, the, the pre-test values in both conditions. Uh, you have this ability to look at the post-test values in both conditions and the change within both conditions. And we can make inferences based on all of this information. And we shouldn't get too caught up on any particular bit of information uh, without contextualizing it with the other bits of information. So what, what I'm basically getting at here is when you look at uh, these crossover trials that indicate, man, you're way worse off in terms of recovery after these sauna interventions. If you just look at how these baseline data compare across these conditions, it doesn't look like this uh, theoretical impairment is any more noticeable than just kind of random day-to-day -day variation of just showing up to the lab mm -hmm. and seeing what you got for these performance outcomes. So the broader point here is baseline measures in a crossover trial give you really valuable data about the stability and the repeatability of the measurements being taken. Uh, and you can use that information when you're interpreting the effect size. So like if you say, man, sauna really screwed these people over, look at how low that post-test value is. If the change from pre to post or the difference between post-sauna and post-control isn't really that much different than just the baseline to baseline difference, we might just be looking at some kind of random noise and fluctuation and it really makes it difficult to say, wow, sauna really screwed these people over. This was a similar principle to the creatine and DHT paper, right? Yeah, yeah. So there, there was a paper where uh, there, there's a single paper indicating that creatine uh, increases DHT levels. And it was a crossover trial. And the reason people say that is because with this group of individuals from baseline to post-testing, uh, I think they had three time points, but baseline to after they started creatine uh dht within that group went up significantly and so people are like damn like creatine obviously increases dht it's going to make you go bald but that increase was mostly due to an unusually low baseline value yeah. when these people just showed up for the creatine treatment right so when you look at the baseline data with these same individuals in the placebo treatment you can look at it and say oh creatine didn't increase their DHT. They just had unusually low DHT levels when they showed up the second time. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that's another instance where baseline differences within crossover trials can be extremely informative and we shouldn't discard that information because uh, it, it really can influence your interpretation in a positive way. Yeah, I, I I just figured that would be a good uh, a good touch point for for real SBS fans who yeah who've listened to the full archive. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so just to round out this conversation, you'd say okay, there's two studies showing some modest impairments. When we contextualize it based on the uh, 
just kind of day-to-day -day variability that we can see from a crossover trial doesn't really look particularly strong or impactful in terms of the, the magnitude of the effect. Um, there are, I should note, two studies actually showing enhanced recovery or enhanced training adaptations after multiple weeks of sauna. So a lot of times people are worried about this acute recovery, recovery idea thinking, well, if I can't acutely recover, that's going to screw over my training adaptations. That's bad news. Um, but, but the previous two studies showing recovery impairments, they were looking at single sauna sessions, looking at 12 to 24 hours post sauna, um, looking at that recovery. Uh, but there are two studies, one by Schoon and colleagues, one by Kirby and colleagues, both linked in the show notes, that actually showed enhanced training adaptations after multiple weeks of sauna. And so a question is, you know, perhaps there is some adaptation going on, like maybe a single dose of sauna might cause a potentially small recovery impairment for 24 hours, but even over the course of only two or three weeks, perhaps you adapt to that and the net impact actually shifts to a more positive uh, direction. Mm -hmm. That's possible. Um, although I will note the subjects in the Rassanen study were experienced with sauna bathing on a regular basis, and it was conducted in Finland where sauna bathing is extremely common. So I'm not sure if we can necessarily say that it purely is just an adaptation thing. Uh, these are small studies. There's very few of them. We probably shouldn't say, well, let's make definitive conclusions based on relatively scarce or sparse data. Mm -hmm. um, I'm comfortable walking away from this saying, eh, there's some stuff saying maybe slightly just barely negative. There's some stuff saying maybe actually positive. I'm comfortable for the time being mostly calling it a wash yeah. and saying we probably don't fully understand exactly what the impact of that is. And we have some like modest stuff trending negative, modest stuff trending positive, probably on average is going to wash out to be fairly neutral. Uh, one interesting thing I will note is I saw, I found a survey of elite Russian endurance uh, track and field athletes. Uh, so it was a survey of 153 Russian, like very elite athletes, some of them performing at the Olympic level, all of them at least performing at like the national team level. And almost 97% reported using sauna bathing regularly as a recovery strategy. So they were using it under the assumption that it was meaningfully positive for their recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, now I, I link that in the show notes cause I think it's interesting. I'm certainly not saying like, well, successful athletes do this. So therefore it must work. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that there are a lot of very successful athletes who do things in spite of their success rather than things that directly contribute to their success. Mm -hmm. However, I do think sometimes when we look at elite athletes and we're wondering, you know, for my kind of general training purposes, is sauna going to completely just destroy my gains and completely mess up my recovery? If you're finding it being used at that level of prevalence in people who are competing at that high level, where the slightest little difference in performance becomes a meaningful, meaningful issue, mm -hmm. I find it very difficult to believe based on the RCTs and based on the observational evidence that sauna would be just disastrous for your recovery. Um, I, I don't think that it's going to meaningfully improve much uh, in terms of recovery or training adaptations. But after kind of digging into this research, I'm just not seeing any reason to 
go out of your way to implement it or restrict it if your main focus is recovery or training adaptations. Uh, but the one caveat I will mention, uh, I would not, as a general rule, throw any unaccustomed stressor into the mix if I had a really important competition or training bout within the next 24 hours, right? So whether it's sauna or something completely different, like anything that is completely out of the ordinary, something that you are not otherwise adapted to yet, you probably don't want to be throwing crazy variables in the mix right before a critical competition period. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something we've talked about a million times, whether it's water cuts for powerlifting weigh-ins, whether it's doing acute stuff during peak week for bodybuilding, like you do not want to just completely uh, throw in a curveball at the last minute and say, boy, I hope this goes well. Yeah. Yeah. I, one, one just kind of like general point to make about this is I think that there's an inclination to, to want to just be able to categorize uh, interventions as good or bad. And so like if something if done longitudinally, uh, maybe it has positive effects then like, Ooh, but acutely might have negative effects. So like, ah, man, you said it's good, but like in this one context, it's bad. So like, how do I sort this? Is it good thing, bad thing? And I think that it's, uh, I think it's always important to keep time course in mind. Like, are, are you proposing that something is beneficial short-term, long-term? Are you proposing that something is harmful short-term, long-term? Because like, you know, in, in this case, you know, let's just take everything at face value and say saunas are deleterious for recovery like 24 hours after a training session but they are also beneficial for longitudinal adaptations like those two things don't conflict like both both things could be true like a a great example of that is just resistance training in the first place right. like if if you're you know if you're training basketball players and maybe you have them do a simulated game and then the next week, you have them do a heavy, high-volume squat workout the day before a simulated game. And you're like, oh, shit, squatting made them a lot worse in that second simulated game. Therefore, basketball players should never do resistance training. Right. Like, I think everyone listening to this would recognize that that's an insane conclusion to draw. But I think that there's, you know, for... For things where their long-term efficacy is less immediately obvious, I think that there is sometimes an inclination to just try to sort things into good-bad, not, you know, maybe good long-term, but deleterious short-term, or, you know, the the opposite, like good short-term, but deleterious long-term. So, yeah. you know, just, just keeping... Just keeping time courses of effects and adaptations in, in mind is always very helpful. Yeah, and I, I kind of got into the into the details a little bit using some research specific terminology, but ultimately the conclusions are, are quite simple. I mean, like you said, the, the metaphor or the analogy that you constructed there is, is really perfect uh, for looking at, at the time course acute versus chronic. So that's a very simple interpretation that's quite useful without getting into a bunch of uh, research jargon. And then a kind of a more simplified approach of my assessment of those crossover trials is like, okay, so you're saying sauna jacked up your recovery and it screwed you over. So those out the way you're performing in that totally screwed over state, is that meaningfully different from when you just showed up next Tuesday? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is no, 
you probably weren't that screwed over. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. so that that's really the simplest interpretation of what I'm getting at with these baseline crossover values is like in your most completely screwed over recovery impaired state. Is that different from you just showing up on a different Thursday? And if mm -hmm. the answer is no, I don't think you were that screwed over. Yeah. 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 All right. So uh, moving on, Greg, you've got a segment about plyometrics. I do. So Eric, I have a question for you. Okay. Okay. Before you looked at, at the outline for this episode, if I would have asked you, how effective do you think plyometrics are for hypertrophy? How would you have responded? Uh, I, I would have said that they were not very effective at all for hypertrophy. And, and that's even become like a, a common thing in fitness, right? It's like you, you, it's not unusual to see the hypertrophy focused fitness types kind of mocking the folks who do plyometrics in the gym. And it's like, dude, you're spinning your wheels. Like, why are you doing all this crap? Like that's for athletes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I would have assumed the same thing. I, I didn't think that plyometrics did anything for hypertrophy. Yeah. Uh, and that, that assumption, uh, may have, may have delayed me learning something, uh, pot potentially interesting and useful. Uh, but so the reason that I assumed that plyometrics probably didn't do anything for hypertrophy is that most of the most of the mechanisms or, or like predictors of hypertrophy that people have proposed over the years just either implicitly or explicitly assume that accruing some amount of fatigue is important for hypertrophy. And and like the whole point of plyometric training is you do little enough of it that for all of the reps, like quality is good performance is good like you intentionally aren't trying to accrue a lot of fatigue but yeah so things like uh the, the concepts of like time under tension training volume volume load uh the more recent quote-unquote effective reps idea all of them either implicitly or explicitly assume that accruing fatigue either during a session or during a single set is important for the hypertrophy stimulus and a lot of the like so-called advanced uh, resistance training techniques also, again, either implicitly or explicitly assume the same thing. So things like drop sets, rest pause sets, myo reps, like they, they all seem to implicitly assume that accruing, like for advanced lifters, maybe you can't even accrue enough fatigue during a set to failure for it to be a good hypertrophy stimulus. So you need to do multiple mini sets to failure or drop weight and take sets past failure. So you know, the, all of those things are as far away from plyometrics as you can get. So yeah, I just assumed plyometrics don't do don't do a thing for hypertrophy. And uh, so so like I mentioned, just how how strongly I assumed that uh, may have kept me from learning something interesting. So in in twenty nineteen, I believe twenty nineteen or twenty twenty. There was a, a systematic review from Gurdjieff and colleagues that showed up in our monthly journal sweep. The title was Effects of Plyometric Versus Resistance Training on Skeletal Muscle Hypertrophy, a Review. And I saw that title and I just said, well, I know what the answer is. I'm not even going to read this. Um, because, because like there are occasionally systematic reviews or metas in our field that, you know, it's it's good to have a systematic reviewer meta on the topic, just just to summarize the evidence that we currently have. But kind of everyone knows how it's going to shake out. So like this, 
the same researcher, Gurdjick, like previously. I already did, know what you're talking about. You know exactly what yeah. I'm going to say. He previously did a meta-analysis quantitatively comparing the hypertrophy effects of resistance training and aerobic training. And like that one was not a surprise. Resistance training, <laughs> way better for hypertrophy than aerobic training. And so I was like. Despite what everyone's saying. Right. Yeah. Right. So I was like, okay, plyos versus resistance training. This is going to go the same route. So like I, I saw the title of it. And I'll admit, I didn't even bother skimming the abstract. I was like, I know, I know where this is going. Um, and so, uh, you know, an another year or two went by. And then a couple more metas showed up in our monthly journal sweep that weren't directly comparing plyometric training and resistance training, but were just looking at the effects of plyometric training itself on hypertrophy. So I was like, okay, that, that is potentially interesting. I'll... Uh, I'll, I'll look into this. Like, I'll check these out. So the first one was by uh, Dela Cruz and colleagues. The title is Effects of Plyometric Training on Lower Body Muscle Architecture, Tendon Structure, Stiffness, and Physical Performance, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And so this meta included 32 studies, and uh, it, found that, uh, it, it found that plyometric training did have a a small to medium size effect on uh, gains in muscle thickness. So uh, a standardized mean difference, kind of like a Cohen's D effect size-ish of uh, 0.59. And that's pretty noteworthy because the effect size it found for hypertrophy was actually basically the same as the effect size it found for improvements in jumping performance and strength performance. Uh, so those were effect sizes of 0.61 and 0.57. And I mean, the whole point of doing plyos <laughs> typically is to jump higher. And so th this found that like quantitatively, so, you know, not, not in terms of like percentage figures or anything like that, but in terms of like how many standard deviations the, the subjects improved by, uh, it, it was pretty comparable for hypertrophy and jumping performance, which, which is pretty noteworthy. Uh, and then, and then more recently, like just in the last month or two, uh, there was another meta-analysis by Arntz and colleagues. Uh, all of these will be linked in the show notes. Uh, but uh, the title of this one is "Effect of Plyometric Jump Training on Skeletal Muscle Hypertrophy in Healthy Individuals: A Systematic Review and Multi-Level Meta-Analysis." And so this one uh, wasn't completely dissimilar from from the Dela Cruz meta, but it did have. Uh, it, it did have tighter inclusion criteria, um, you know, going through each one with a fine tooth comb, probably not worth our time here, but this one was a smaller meta in terms of how many studies were included, but it, it was probably a, a higher quality meta analysis. Uh, so this one included 15 studies, so it still wasn't like a super small meta. Um, and it found that, uh, it found that, uh, Plyometric training did still have a, a a noteworthy effect on hypertrophy, so an effect size of 0.47, which again is is like a, a small to medium uh, size effect. It found that that effect was present both for uh, athletes and for uh, like untrained non-athletes. So for for athletes, the pooled effect size was about 0.33, which you know is smaller than than the overall uh, mean effect but is also a, a non-trivial effect. Like that, that is still like meaningful hypertrophy. Uh, and for the, the untrained non-athletes, it was an effect size of about 0.55. And also a really cool thing to see from this meta is they did a sub-analysis to see 
whether like like basically whether the effect was mediated by how high quality of measurements studies used. So some of these studies uh, did directly assess muscle hypertrophy, uh, you know, looking at things like muscle thickness or cross-sectional area using ultrasound. And uh, some of them just kind of estimated hypertrophy using uh, estimation or prediction equations. So um, in, in labs that, you know, don't have the resources for an ultrasound unit, you might see a study that tries to assess hypertrophy just looking at like limb circumferences. Like, you know, did, did your flexed upper arm circumference increase by a quarter inch or something? Um, and, and some of them maybe will try to estimate quad cross-sectional area by taking like a thigh circumference and also uh, a skin fold thickness to estimate like the size of the layer of fat over, over the muscles. So, you know, th those are... Um, you know th those measurements don't mean nothing, but they're they're not as high quality of measurements as say an ultrasound measure of thickness or cross sectional area, and so this meta found that actually the effect size was larger for studies that had higher quality measurements. Which, if anything, you often see the reverse. Like maybe in in a meta, like things that use kind of imprecise measurements, we'll find like ooh, whatever treatment we're looking at is really really effective. And then as soon as you study it with higher quality measurements, you're like, eh, maybe a little bit less effective. Yeah. So this meta actually found the opposite. So the, the studies with higher quality measurement tools actually found plyos were more effective for hypertrophy, which, which is cool to see. And so, um, you know, th these are now two metas finding that uh, plyos themselves seem to have, you know, not a, not a huge effect on hypertrophy, but certainly like a, a notable non-trivial effect. And so I, I would have expected, honestly, like, like basically nothing, nothing more than like jogging. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is not zero, but is pretty close to zero. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, but no. So it, it seems like uh, independently plyos do do call some hypertrophy. And so uh, after after looking at these two metas, I was like, well, maybe I should go back and look at that Gurdjieff systematic review like me. Maybe I did skip it, uh, like I, I should have given it a, a fair shake. And so I went back and checked it out, and uh, it was also very interesting. So there, there were kind of two, uh, can't really say analyses because it wasn't a meta, but, but there, there were two groups of studies that were summarized. Uh, and one was studies that were just directly comparing head-to-head -head resistance training for one group, plyos for another group, and in all six of those studies, there was no statistically significant difference in lower body muscle hypertrophy between plyometric training and resistance training. Uh, the other group of studies they looked at, and I say group, but it was just two studies. Uh, it was studies comparing uh, lifting alone to lifting plus plyometric. So one group would just do lifting, resistance training. The other group would do resistance training plus plyos. And so in those two studies, uh, lifting plus plyos didn't lead to more hypertrophy than lifting alone. So it, it didn't seem to be an additive effect. Um, but, you know, the, the first analysis, like just head-to-head, -head, lifting versus plyos, seems to be fairly similar. So the, the standard caveat here is that most of the studies in all of these metas used untrained lifters. Um, however, I, I think that when I say that, the, the first place a lot of people's minds will go is like, well, okay, th 
this is completely pointless. Uh, you know, new lifters will grow from anything. So uh, why should we care? And to that, I would say, like, I don't think that fully gets you off the hook because while new lifters do grow some from, from pretty much anything, uh, they don't, like, this is the important point, they don't grow equally well from everything. Um, like, most of the metas in our field predominantly use studies on untrained lifters, and they find very frequently that one intervention is better than another. Um, so even though, like you would expect just about anything to cause at least some hypertrophy for completely untrained folks. You shouldn't expect, like, not not everything causes a lot of hypertrophy for untrained folks. Like, not not everything works equally well. Uh, and also, the, the Dela Cruz meta, or the, the Arntz meta, I mean, um, did, did have five studies on athletic populations. So, you know, either people who were probably doing some resistance training for their sport or who at least had done an, enough kind of like plyometric type stuff just from practicing and participating in their sport that their lower body musculature was at least somewhat trained at baseline regardless of of how much or whether they were doing resistance training and even in that group of five studies they did find a small but significant effect of plyometric training on hypertrophy um so yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I still think that this is that this is pretty pretty noteworthy, and that this body of literature does show that uh, plyometric training is is a meaningful hypertrophy stimulus. Like I'm not claiming that it's uh, better than resistance training, but it, it does seem to like independently have a a small but notable effect on on muscle growth, and I find this pretty noteworthy. Because to me, at least, this suggests that there may be some unknown mechanism of muscle hypertrophy that we don't know about and aren't really looking for. Um, because, like, you know, the the main mechanism people are looking at these days is just mechanical tension. And there's certainly mechanical tension with, with plyometric training, but... At, at least, like, there won't be nearly as much concentric tension as there would be for resistance training. Just because, like, if, if you've seen, like, a force velocity curve, you know, you're, you're moving your body pretty quick when you're doing plyos, and you can't generate that much tension when you're moving at high velocities. Like, it's it's just not possible. Um, and also, like, there's there's not going to be nearly as much metabolic fatigue doing 10 jumps as, like, a 10RM squat. So... You know, the 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 fact that this is causing a fair bit of hypertrophy, even though it's not, it, it doesn't seem to be tapping into the main mechanisms of hypertrophy that, that people are talking about, both in the fitness industry and in the scientific literature, um, suggests to me that, like, maybe there's some other driver of hypertrophy that we haven't found that maybe we should look for, uh, which, which I find very exciting. Uh, a, a potential counterpoint or rejoinder to this idea is that, you know, just looking at, at mechanical tension, uh, there is going to be quite a bit of eccentric stress with plyos and quite a bit of eccentric uh, uh, muscle tension generated. And we know that, that eccentric training can be a, a potent stimulus for hypertrophy. So it's, it's possible that that's all that's going on just from kind of absorbing the force of landing for each eccentric or for each jump or whatever is the thing that's causing the hypertrophy, but 
I don't know that personally, at least to me, that that still seems like a stretch because even though there will be that tension, that eccentric tension from each landing, that is still like it's not that much, you know. Right. Like like in in terms of magnitude, it's a lot, but each contraction is still just so short. Yeah. Um, it seems like it would be way, way, way less stimulus than you'd get from really any form of resistance training. So, yeah. uh, yeah, it. it in terms of what we know about mechanisms of hypertrophy, yeah, it seems like plyo should do fuck all. Right. But, like, they seem to work kind of well, which which is interesting. Um, so, so to be clear, uh, in, in terms of takeaways from this segment, I definitely don't think plyos are any sort of silver bullet for hypertrophy. And also, even though the, the Gurdjieff systematic review found that in those six studies that directly compared plyos and resistance training, even though that sample of six studies found them to be similarly effective, I am not personally willing to go quite that far. Um, and, and certainly for trained lifters, like I think that you probably can build some muscle with plyos, but I don't think you're going to be able to develop an Olympia level physique just with plyometric training. Like, you know, th- that would be kind of the, the literal expansive extrapolation of those findings. And I am certainly not on board with that. Uh, and just practically speaking, there's, there's a pretty finite number of muscle groups that you can train effectively with plyos. Like theoretically you could rig up machines to train just about anything plyometrically, but you know, in terms of what's feasible for the most part, it's, it's, it's jumps, you know? So you're, Training your quads, maybe your glutes, definitely your calves, you know, but, but how would you do, well, I was going to say, how would you do plyometric training for your biceps? There is a Jim Stepani video for that, which, uh, maybe we can link that in the show notes as well. One of the funniest things I've ever seen. If you put it in there, I'll I'll include it. Okay. Um, but yeah, like, like how would you do plyometric training for like, I don't know. Your abs. Like, I don't know. So, yeah, you, you can't train every muscle effectively with plyo. You, so, could, you could do, like, the, like, ball throws and stuff like that. I but, guess. But, but, yeah, it's yeah. it's very different. Yeah. So, you know, even, even if it was just as effective as, as resistance training, you're still going to have to do resistance training because you, you just can't train everything super effectively with plyos. Yeah. Um, And, finally, just to reiterate, in the handful of studies that have tested lifting plus plyos with lifting alone lifting plus plyos didn't seem to have any additive effect so if you're already doing a lot of resistance training adding some plyos in probably won't hurt your results but it probably won't help them either at least not not to any notable uh extent uh but i i did still think this was cool to see primarily just for the mechanistic stuff like I, i do think that this suggests that well i mean we know that there's plenty of stuff that we as a species don't know about skeletal muscle yet. And this, this kind of hints at one more that like, yeah, maybe the, the mechanisms of hypertrophy picture is more complicated than we realize. And and maybe there is some other mechanism lurking out there that we don't know about yet. Um, and I also think that this is helpful information to know, uh, you know, maybe if you have to take some time out of the gym, uh, or, you know, maybe you're um, like you have a, a lower back injury and you're like, ah oh, man, like I, I don't want to lose a ton of muscle in my legs, but it's can't really load the spine. So like squats, deadlifts, that's going to be tough. What can I do? 
maybe you could just do some plyos and if nothing else should be effective for just helping you maintain what you currently have uh, and i also think that this bit of information helps offer an explanation just for something you see in the real world like um athletes in in power sports and sports with plyometric components uh even if they've never done resistance training oftentimes they have pretty good lower body muscular development already like before they even touch a weight and and i could very feasibly see this being a, a key reason why like they're they're doing enough plyometrics just practicing their sport plyometrics you know probably aren't a, a training stimulus on par with resistance training for lower body muscular development but they are an effective training stimulus for lower body muscular development and so you know the, these if you see like high school athletes with pretty jacked lower bodies who've never touched a weight uh i wouldn't necessarily count them untrained like they've they've done plenty of plyos for their sport and that's probably one of the reasons that they do have pretty robust lower body muscular development uh, before they even get into lifting. Yeah. yeah I think this is a good example uh, that, that kind of ties back into discussions we've had about empiricism versus rationalism. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think it's very intuitive in fitness to assume that everything that makes sense is true and that everything that is true should make sense. Mm -hmm. Uh and sometimes that's just not how it goes, you know, like, so that, that's why we often discourage people from being too overly confident in arguments that are like, well, theoretically, this approach to training makes sense. Therefore, it's probably true. Like, that's mm -hmm. that's good. And, and that's a useful way to approach things for which we do not have human evidence. We don't have empirical data that we can actually use. Mm hmm. But yeah, like I, from a rationalist perspective, like you and I both go into this question saying, no, plyometrics are going to be trash for hypertrophy. Yeah. Um, well, it, it, empirically, it's like, that's it, not the case. It's like based on everything we know about hypertrophy, it doesn't seem like it should be an effective stimulus. Yeah. But then kind of the inverse of that is that if it does prove to be an effective stimulus, that means that there might be something that we don't know about hypertrophy exactly you know? yeah and so it, it's always like it's it's good to form working understandings based on our current knowledge mm -hmm. right that that kind of rationalist perspective of like well we don't have all the empirical observations we could ever want therefore we're going to have to lean on theory and, and kind of piece some things together tentatively mm -hmm. but it's important that you always treat those things as being truly tentative pending further uh influence from empirical data when it becomes available so yeah. like for for this you know from a rationalist perspective i there's no way i would have expected plyometrics to be this effective for hypertrophy uh and the empirical data would suggest hey there's there's something there you know and, yeah, and, and so you got to get back to the drawing board and, and it's not just one or two studies like it's 15 30 human trials on it like it, it's it, it's kind of at the point where you know not to speak in absolutes, but like, I feel like you kind of got to accept it. Yeah. Um, like, cause it's, it's not just one of those things where it's one or two papers and it's like, ah, let's, let's wait and see for more to roll in. Like there's, there's more research on this topic than I realized. And yeah. it, um, you know, it, it seems to paint a, a pretty clear picture leaning in one direction and, and that direction being, yeah, plyo is reasonably effective for hypertrophy. Yeah. It's also like, you know, sometimes, like you mentioned, the, the kind of start of this conversation is jumping to conclusions uh, about a meta-analysis of like, oh, that, 
this at the surface level that research question doesn't seem very interesting therefore i'll skip it mm -hmm. um but you know i was reading a, a meta-analysis by james Steele recently about um uh, steady state cardio versus interval training uh, looking at different effects on fat mass, lean mass, and things like that. One of the things I thought was really, uh, really helpful with that meta-analysis was they did the direct comparison uh, between these two different types of cardio, but they also did as kind of a supplementary analysis independently, what is the effect of steady state cardio on lean mass or on fat mass? And then independently, mm -hmm. what is the effect of interval training on lean mass and on fat mass? And so sometimes you'll find that meta-analyses have a lot more to offer than just the kind of highlighted research questions. Sometimes you find secondary and tertiary analyses that are actually useful in other contexts and other applications. So uh, yeah, I, I, the one thing I've learned over the years, one of the things I've, I've learned is that a meta-analysis can often offer you a lot more information than is kind of billed on the... Uh, on the like headline, you mm -hmm. know? So, uh, yeah, so that's very interesting and I probably won't be incorporating any plyos, but it, it's good to know that they're on the menu. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. So I have a really quick conversation. I want to have uh, a quick little discussion, uh, to wrap up the episode that then I'll, I'll play us out here, but I got another question about something from last week's episode. So, I believe it was last week's episode that you mentioned you were on vacation and you kind of ate intuitively. Mm -hmm. um, but that was presented within the uh, road to the stage segment, which is obviously kind of a longer term weight loss uh, journey, so to speak. And so I got a question from someone that was a really good question. And they were like, well, how is it that Greg can say he ate intuitively on vacation when it's taking place within the context of a broader weight loss goal? Uh, and it gets to the... Um, it kind of opens up this conversation of what is intuitive eating? So like, what is the definition? How is it used in research? And then how is it promoted by the people who came up with it? And how is it embraced by certain communities that really identify with the concept? And I think it's important to recognize that those are all very different things. The explicit definition of the intervention, how it's addressed in research, how it is presented by the people who came up with it and kind of popularized it, and then how it's embraced within different communities of individuals. So I, after that question, there are other questions about, you know, well, how does health at every size factor into this? How does uh, body diversity and body positivity, mindful eating, how do all these things factor in? Is this just going to be a review of Wittgenstein's uh, idea of language games? No, because the the that's that seems to be exactly what you're getting at with with this setup. No, I have no idea what you're referring to, but I what I want to do is talk about what these um, interventions actually explicitly are mm -hmm. and how they might be incorporated in different contexts. Because in, in a lot of cases, it's like, do you believe in the concept of making any intentional and cha change to your diet or do you believe in mindful eating yeah. or intuitive eating and i want to just kind of get into what the research says these particular interventions are and how they might be used because you know sometimes people will, will wonder like well, okay you guys have an app that does have you know you can choose a weight gain goal a weight maintenance goal or you could choose a weight loss goal and so how can someone who offers the option for a weight loss goal uh, 
be on board with concepts like mindful eating, intuitive eating, and even just like uh, embracing body diversity and body positivity, you know? So I wanted to have a kind of a broader discussion about what these things are and how they fit together. So first of all, uh, mindful eating. Th this is a really uh, a, a, a term that's getting more and more popular uh, over the past couple of years. Mindful eating is really simple. It is the act of paying attention to food during consumption. So uh, another way to phrase that is having sensual awareness and focusing on the experience of food intake. So taking stock of your senses as you're consuming food. And the goal for most mindful eating interventions in the research is not explicitly weight loss. Uh, it, it, it has been applied to weight loss interventions, but what you're trying to do there is become more aware of internal and, exter and external cues to eating, right? So you're just trying to kind of bring yourself into the present moment during eating and assess the different cues that are, are occurring during eating. You know, am I eating in response to my environment, a particular stimulus? Am I focusing in on the flavor and the aromas of this food? Or am I just watching TV and just mindlessly kind of consuming things without really experiencing those senses along the way? And this does tie into uh, various other concepts in the eating research. So like there's been nutrition research looking at the texture of food and how it impacts uh, the amount we eat or, uh, you know, the time it takes for us to eat or our attentional focus during eating. And generally speaking, it looks like mindful eating, paying attention to the process of eating and fully kind of immersing yourself and focusing on the flavors, the aromas, eating slowly and taking your time with it. It does seem to kind of... Uh, without any intentional restraint, it does seem to enhance enjoyment of a meal and reduce the total amount of energy consumption. Uh, so mindful eating is something that is not explicitly a weight loss intervention, but it can be utilized uh, as part of an intervention where weight loss does occur. Mm -hmm. uh, and what you're trying to do there is slow down, prevent mindless eating, take your time with the food, experience the flavor and the aroma. And in many cases, uh, it noticing the sensations of eating and being focused on eating rather than distracted does seem to kind of unintentionally curtail energy intake to some extent. Now, intuitive eating uh, is very, very focused on cues. It, it, it's really focused on eating based on physiological hunger, stopping eating based on satiety cues, uh, and seeking out foods that are compatible with what you are really drawn to in the moment. Uh, so intuitive eating uh, really is kind of an exploratory process of figuring out when I eat, why do I eat? When I stop eating, what is, what is actually convincing me to stop? What is dictating my selection of different food choices? So intuitive eating is really about getting in touch with cues, emotions, and uh, stimuli that influence our feeding behaviors, whether that comes to the decision to start eating, the decision to stop eating, the amount we eat, and the things we choose to eat. Uh, so again, the, the three central factors here, um, it's, it's giving yourself permission to eat when hungry, you know, giving your, per, yourself some permission to have flexibility with food selection, eating for physical reasons rather than emotional or environmental reasons, uh, and then relying on your hunger and satiety cues to kind of dictate the onset and the cessation of feeding. And so again, 
intuitive eating is not something that is explicitly a weight loss intervention. It's about kind of reconnecting with the cues and stimuli that inform your eating behaviors. Uh, and so a lot of people who embrace mindful eating and intuitive eating treat these as things that are directly counter to the concept of making intentional food choices to alter health, performance, body composition, etc. And I don't think they necessarily have to be framed that way. I think that you can utilize these, um, these different strategies with a variety of different goals and contexts in a way that can be really constructive. So, for example, um, you know, there, most people who do intuitive eating do not track calories or macros. Um, and you would think on the surface level, there's really no way to make that work. But I would actually disagree with that. Um, so, for example, I'm not saying that everyone who does intuitive eating should be tracking calories or macros. In many cases, they are using intuitive eating because alternative strategies might be contraindicated for their situation. However, I think it could be really informative to embrace intuitive eating and mindful eating, to take stock of sensations while eating, to take stock of uh, cues and stimuli that are informing your feeding habits. And so during the day, you're not like necessarily trying to hit a particular macro target or a calorie target. But at the end of the day, you go through and retrospectively kind of make an account of, okay, what did I eat today? And you kind of match that up with the observations related to intuitive eating and mindful eating. And you might come away with some really helpful strategies. And you might notice, for example, wow, uh, I ate based on my hunger and satiety cues today, as I always do but why was my calorie intake 500 calories higher than normal? Mm -hmm. You know, and you might be able to go back and make some really useful inferences based on, well, what kind of cues were informing my, my decisions today related to the onset of eating and the cessation of eating and my food choices. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that in certain contexts, you can merge some of these concepts together. And based on the actual definitions of intuitive eating and mindful eating, they need not necessarily be viewed as completely inappropriate in the context of someone who is intentionally working to lose weight yeah I, I think i think it's worth just kind of kind of driving home the idea that uh like just because a treatment or intervention was developed for one particular purpose that doesn't mean it can't also be useful for another purpose like for example viagra was being developed as a blood pressure medication that doesn't mean it doesn't also make your dick hard. Uh, so this is kind of the, I feel like that's a, a somewhat apt metaphor, maybe a bad metaphor. Yeah. I'm not totally <laughs> sure. But I, I think it, I think it's a, a similar concept. Like regardless of what the idea of intuitive eating, like regardless of the, the explicit purpose it was initially developed for, that doesn't mean that those same ideas and concepts can't have utility and purchase outside of that initial context exactly yeah and, and i i said to the um the person who asked this question um they're like ah well this person was one of the kind of co-creators of intuitive eating and they wouldn't like the way that you're that that you're framing it within that context and so i looked at some of that content and i was like yeah it seems like their messaging is pretty antithetical to the idea of basically ever intentionally pursuing a weight loss goal um, so we disagree on that and that's okay, but you know, we, the intervention can be applied in different contexts and, uh, 
you know, like you said, even if it wasn't designed for a very specific application, it doesn't mean it has no utility within that specific application. I mean, the the people who developed most of the statistical pr procedures we used developed them to verify the superiority of the white race. But like we can still use them for other purposes. Yeah, the, there is a very <laughs> a very tragic history of the development of statistical techniques. Now the T test, that was for beer. That was for beer. The which T is test, good. it yeah, gets the, a pass. The T test is safe, that was for Stu beer. Students T test. Yeah, but like th there were a lot of folks who back in the day when they were developing statistical methods, they were like the chair of the Department of Eugenics. Yeah. Like explicitly at universities, which yeah. is really messed up. Uh, so again, yeah, we can take the math and leave literally all the rest. Correct. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, another thing that came up. In and so this... what we're saying is that if you're using intuitive eating for any purpose other than weight loss, you're a eugenicist. <laughs> that's that's not that's what, what you're saying. that's what you're saying. No, okay. I, I no. Um, but so then uh, another question that came up here was just about the idea of like health at every size. Right. That came up in the conversation. I, I think. People have asked us about that before, um, either directly or indirectly. And I think it's important to, to note that there are kind of two tracks in the health at every size debate, uh, if we try to simplify it down to that. And like when, when it comes to these topics, intuitive eating, mindful eating, health at every size, body diversity, like I'm in no position to speak on behalf of them or to like unilaterally define them. But we work in fitness. People ask us about these topics and you kind of have an obligation to form some working understanding of what they mean to you and how they kind of fit into the the overall picture. Um, so health at every size, sometimes people kind of uh, try to really narrowly define it as like, well, if you support this concept of health at every size, it means that you fully and unequivocally reject any connection between adiposity and any cardiometabolic health outcome. Like some people try to like kind of make that the only possible application of the concept of health at every size. Um, but alternatively, like there are a lot of people who view health at every size quite differently and say, well, th there's really a couple main things. First of all, there's tremendous bias against people with larger bodies in healthcare and outside of healthcare. And that is an inherently unproductive and deleterious thing and just an unkind thing. So one one aspect is focusing on uh, rectifying the wrong of that weight bias. And another aspect is the fact that people at any body size can make proactive steps toward improving their health through a variety of behavioral modifications that need not explicitly be weight loss, right? So a person at any size can make decisions to increase their physical activity level, to increase their consumption of vegetables, right? To aim to increase their fiber intake, right? There are a lot of behavioral modifications that can occur at any size to improve health. And so I think it's important, like in fitness, there's a lot of really toxic information about there, out there about health at every size, people really criticizing it and saying like, no, like everyone needs to be, you know, 12% body fat if you're a man or 20% if you're a female uh, or, or for if you're a woman. Uh, like there's a lot of really toxic chatter about health at every size and trying to uh, trying to really straw man it into the worst possible argument or the least compatible with the evidence. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think th that's kind of my, my perspective on health at every size is like, 
I my focus when it comes to that discussion is like removing bias against people with large bodies with, with high body weights, high BMIs, etc. Removing that bias, uh, proactively working against that bias, and focusing on strategies that can be implemented by anybody to mm-hmm. to make proactive steps toward health. Um, and then the the other thing that came up was uh, body positivity in that conversation. And again, this is something that comes up all over fitness circles. Uh, usually, like I hate that it's this way, but this conversation always comes up when somebody with a BMI of like twenty six is on the cover of a magazine. Yeah. And a bunch of people fucking lose their mind. Uh, and like, dude, if you're checking out at the grocery store and you see a magazine cover and the, the, the person on it has a BMI of, you know, 25.4, 27, God forbid, even 30.3. If that ruins your day and you have to like get on Twitter and get banned for a week because of it, dude, you got to work on that. Like that, that is not healthy for you. It is in your own best interest to figure out why this is ruining your day. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, w- the way I view body positivity and body diversity as a fitness professional. Well, and, and the other thing I'll say is just like, if, if, if you're the type of person who's going to get online and post about that, like, you know, like, like you said, if a, if a model with a BMI of 27 makes it to the cover of Sports Illustrated and you're like, this is this is a fucking travesty. Yeah. I, I need to sound off about this on Instagram and how, how much this uh, reflects the degeneration of our society and culture. The thing is, the person on the cover of that magazine isn't going to see your post, but you have probably dozens of people in your life who know you, who are bigger than that person, who are going to see that, and it's going to make them feel like shit. And then, like, if you are someone who, you know, let's say let's say you are a good coach who specializes in weight loss. Those are people who maybe you would have previously been able to help who are now never going to fucking talk to you. Like, yeah. you, you are signaling, like, I am not someone who cares about you or can empathize with you. Like, I, I don't think people who look like you should be visible in public. Right. And so, like... It's, it, it's, it's cruel at worst and self-defeating at best. Yeah. And, and that's even something that I've thought about. Like my uh, general predisposition is to be uh, a smart ass and to be self-deprecating. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I've tried to work on is like in the past, I might talk about like, oh, back at when I was at this weight and I was, I looked at this particular way. Like I, back in the day, I would make self-deprecating jokes that I never intended to be like generalizable to other people. I'd mm-hmm. just be like, oh yeah, like based on where I'm at now, that's where I was then. But then I, I did think about like, well, if you're like going to say, oh my God, when I was like 13% body fat and I was a complete fat ass. And it's yeah. like, well then like, what does that say to everyone listening to you? Who's 14% body fat, you yeah. know, like and it's just a ridiculous thing to do. Oh, I, I make a ton of fat jokes on myself. And it's only when I'm the fattest person in the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, I'm just like, well, you know, I personally don't care about this. I think it's funny. Like, I can have a laugh at my own expense. Yeah. But like, I need to I need to think about how this other person might feel if I make that joke. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like I said, if if. if 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 you are that person who every time you see a magazine cover and you you are the person who is getting upset and causing this discussion about body positivity, like 
for your own sake. Try to explore that and work on that. Um, but like people will bring up the question of like, well, how does a fitness professional who makes content about weight loss um, view like the, the discussion related to body positivity, body diversity? And first of all, I think they're super important. I think that bias against individuals with overweight and obesity is, like I said, inherently bad, inherently counterproductive, inherently cruel, uh, whether it's occurring within or outside of the healthcare space. Um, but I also don't think that, you know, we should remove an individual's autonomy when it comes to making their own decisions about their health and wellness related behaviors, you know? So like, uh, I think that uh, no person should ever be shamed or guilted into changing their body, uh, nor should they face any external pressure to do that. But as a fitness professional, what I want to do, like kind of my goal is, you know, I, I think it's a really positive thing when people feel empowered to take control of their own decisions and behaviors and to pursue the behaviors and goals that are important to them personally. And I think in order to do that, you need some autonomy you need a sense of competence, self-efficacy, and you need some source of intrinsic motivation. And so as a fitness professional, my goal explicitly is to not convince people what they ought to do with their body shape or their body size, but to empower people with the tools they might need so that they can cultivate that autonomy, that sense of competence and self-efficacy and intrinsic motivation. I want people to feel totally capable and empowered to do whatever they wish with their body weight, their body composition, and to pursue whatever goal is important to them, whether it's performance, body composition, health, wellness, whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to take a moment to kind of discuss these topics because, you know, they come up a lot in fitness and usually not in the most productive way. You know, some of those conversations get really toxic. And I think it was important to clarify, like, first of all, what these things are to me, even though I'm not an authority on them. And just kind of how I approach them as a fitness professional. And I guess by extension, how I would encourage other fitness professionals to, to approach that people who have a big audience or a big platform within fitness. Like, I think it's important to keep some of these concepts in mind when you're putting out content. And when it comes specifically to that original question of, you know, uh, intuitive eating and mindful eating, how can that work within uh, the kind of fitness culture we know today, uh, I, I do think that there is a way to incorporate those as really helpful strategies, pretty much regardless of an individual's goal, whether it's weight loss or otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, but but more importantly, I'm, I'm hoping that the broader conversation in the fitness world about body positivity, body diversity, health at every size, I hope it starts to trend a little bit more productive. Because um, the way those conversations go these days is it gets a little ugly. Yeah, it's not great. Well, I, I mean, it's like, um, uh, man, I don't even remember how long that, how long ago it was now, like a year ago, maybe, uh, my, my first, uh, visit at the gym near my house where they, they put me through just like the initial screening thing. And, you know, I, I told the guy like, Hey, what are you trying to accomplish? You know what? Like, I'm just trying to, to like build some muscle, get some strength back, haven't lifted in a while, recently broke my arm, trying to trying to get strength back in that arm, get range of motion back. Like, that's what I explicitly told the guy. But, like, I'm an overweight dude, and just, like, literally everything about that screen was just like, oh, well, you fucking need to lose weight, and, like, here's how we're going to do that. Yeah. I'm like, 
I didn't tell you I wanted to do that. Like, that's why, why are you assuming this? Well, dude, there's so many stories of people who are going to a physician for just completely unrelated shit. They go in there with a broken collarbone. You know, they go there with a cut that needs stitches. And the first thing the physician says is, uh, wow, you really need to lose some weight. Anyway, let's take a look at that wound. (laughs) It's like, dude, I got cut. Like, you know, but, but the whole visit starts to become like purely weight focused. Yeah. You know, which is not not productive yeah so i'll i'll obscure i i mean like the so one of the motivations for the idea of health at every size like it's it's not just like fitness stuff like it also applies to like medical shit right um and and like one of the important things you you noted was like regardless of whether or not it may be beneficial for some people to lose weight independent of that there are almost always beneficial things people could do for their health uh other than losing weight like that that is one positive thing that maybe they could do but there's a whole laundry list of other things and so with like the idea of like weight stigma in the in the medical system and weight stigma among doctors and how that can like actively harm and contribute to worse health outcomes for fat people um so like i'm not going to give away any any identifying information but like I, i know someone who's who's rather overweight uh, in their late 20s, they went to the doctor and like, you know, I, I'm not going to make a medical diagnosis for this person, but I feel pretty fucking confident about what I'm about to say. Like their blood work comes back and their LDL was like in the 400s, which I mean, you got to go on a fucking statin at that point. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to prescribe that to him. Like I'm not a medical doctor, but, you know, for for a fucking doc, that should be you know, maybe do a confirmatory test a month later or something to verify, but like whatever. When your LDL is that high, like, come on. There's right. there's one thing you gotta do there. What did his doctor tell him? He said, You know what? You got plenty of weight you need to lose, so like lose some weight. Once you've done that, if your LDL hasn't come down, then we can maybe talk about getting you on a statin. And brother, like weight loss can reduce LDL levels. That's not going to take you to from 400 to 100, you know, like that's like, and I told him, I was like, dude, you know, I'm not going to tell you what drugs to take or what to do about your health, but I would maybe encourage you to get a second opinion about that. Cause I mean, I, I don't know. How's that? How's that going to go? If he doesn't lose weight, his doctor's just like not ever going to prescribe a statin and let him die of heart disease. Like what? What's that going to look like, you yeah. know? And it's, it's fucking insane. And so, like, health, and, at, and, and, health and, at every size would say, like, hey, regardless of whether this is a fat person or not, if their LDL's that fucking high, give them a statin. Right. And, and also, like, yeah, you, you can like, also focus on weight-neutral things that ought to be helpful there, right? Yeah, so, don't, like, the, the, don't the, give people different standards of care dependent on their level of adiposity. Exactly, yeah. And, and like... I don't want people to misinterpret that thinking that we're establishing a dichotomy between lifestyle intervention and medication. Right. Yeah. But the appropriate thing there, as far as I would, I would expect, I'm not medically trained would be potentially weight loss and a statin. Yeah. Why not? Behavioral approaches plus the medication that's literally designed for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the thing that kills me is you'll, you'll see people who are like, well, I just follow the data and I, here's an ep- epidemiology paper on BMI. Therefore, you know, 
just do lifestyle stuff and and yeah this this weight bias is a positive thing in healthcare that should be shaming people into weight loss and and that's my quote unquote evidence-based perspective but what those people are missing is that in like every area of medicine there is a pragmatic balance to strike between efficacy and effectiveness mm -hmm. so when you're going to approach a particular treatment you don't just think what is the maximum upside if this is completed with perfect adherence you have to consider what is the likely success rate and what is the realistic level of uh adherence and compliance that can be anticipated at the population level you know so like we even have different analytical approaches for this in randomized controlled trials right so like you'll open up an rct and they'll have an intention to treat analysis and a per protocol analysis because they understand that the effect of being told to do something is different from the effect of successfully completing it. Those are two very different things that ought to be analyzed and interpreted differently. Mm -hmm. And so when people kind of take this approach that like, oh yeah, the likelihood of success, the likelihood of a high level of adherence and compliance, that's not part of evidence-based practice. Like all you have to do is say, hey, lose some weight and that's going to fix everything that actually is antithetical to this balance that is that is really struck in like every area of medicine, which yeah. is not just what is the upside of successfully completing this intervention, but also uh, what is the likelihood that at the population level, this is going to be completed with perfect success every single time. Yeah. You know, there, there has to or, be a or, balance there. Or just with a sufficient level of success that the net effect is more positive than any number of alternatives. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so you have to like, and that's why people often talk about this kind of weight neutral approach to different health interventions is like, okay, what is the success rate of this person losing 25% of their body weight and maintaining it for the next 40 years? Based on the literature, that's a low probability. Yeah. Right. But what's the probability of me helping this person become a little bit more physically active, making some swaps with their diet and improving the overall health of their nutrition habits and exercise habits pretty substantially higher success rate for that than saying yeah lose a quarter of your body weight and maintain it forever yeah you know it doesn't mean those things are impossible but you have to consider the probability of success based on previous data when, whenever you're talking about a treatment right yeah. so that was a, a long-winded and meandering conversation but it basically started with a question of like how can one possibly pursue intuitive eating in the context of a broader weight loss goal? And then just kind of using that as a jumping off point to discuss questions that we've kind of indirectly been kind of led toward, but never really addressed that fully on the podcast. But yeah, I, I think it's important for the fitness world to embrace body diversity, body positivity, um, health-related interventions that don't necessarily require weight loss. Uh, and then even eating strategies like intuitive eating and mindful eating. There, there are ways to incorporate these ideas within a, a very broad selection of goals. And most importantly, people should feel, feel uh, empowered to choose their own goals. And they should feel like they have all the tools necessary to accomplish whatever goals that they select. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, to play us out, uh, this episode went so much longer than expected. And that is par for the course. To play us out... Uh, I had a funny little exchange <laughs> with a listener. So I mentioned previously that Ohio, I, I was stunned when I moved to North Carolina because culture existed. And that was new to me being from Ohio. And uh, a, a listener 
was like, hey, dude, Ohio definitely has a culture. And I was like, dude, putting spaghetti in your chili is not a culture, uh, which is like Cincinnati style chili. It's it's spaghetti with some chili. It's very good. But I was just kind of poking fun at him. And he said, no, I'm on the other side of Ohio. And I was like, yeah, car tires also is not a culture. And he admitted there is a statue of a rubber worker directly outside of his office. Incredible. So, so proving my point, it took me two guesses <laughs> to get exactly that close. But but uh, in all seriousness, I was being hyperbolic with that, but I was referring to an actual empirical observation that's I, I think is really interesting. So if you Google like things about Ohio and specifically central Ohio, like the Columbus area, you'll see that people refer to it as America's test market or test city usa uh, not because it's the leading distributor of testosterone but uh it is a test market where basically companies decided several decades ago like whatever works in central ohio will work in all of america because it virtually has no independent culture of its own <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like it's just this like perfect little microcosm of a generic version of the united states Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's what I was referring to is that Columbus is this kind of universal test market. And I must say, it is awesome to live in a universal test market. Uh, very <laughs> under. So like, yeah, did I miss out on all those unique cultural aspects that give a city its own kind of flavor and vibe? Of course I did. But there were times in college when I was in Columbus and I'd be like, in a Taco Bell at 8 p.m. eating off the breakfast menu and being like, what the hell's happening here? Yeah. And like what you notice is when you start traveling outside of Columbus, you'll like you'll go to a restaurant and be like, hey, I'll get the salad bar. And they're like, we've never done a salad bar and we never, ever will. And you start to realize that all these like chains, whether it's like retail uh, or restaurants, whatever the case is, you have this unique offering of products that are completely experimental and not accessible anywhere else in the country mm -hmm. uh so while having uh <laughs> that kind of extremely generic usa culture in columbus uh, had some downsides you also got to just try all this wacky experimental stuff from major chains some of them caught on some of them didn't uh but yeah so living in columbus was a really weird thing where you could just kind of sample all of these hypothetical ideas that may or may not catch on uh, but one thing I will acknowledge, though, the one culture that is strong in central Ohio is the most important culture, which is lifting culture. Uh, so I don't know if people recognize this, but central Ohio is like a hub for strength shit. So like the Arnold Classic, it, back when it was only in one location, it was in Columbus. Now it's kind of done other stuff where it spreads out. Uh, Rogue is is uh based out of central ohio uh they make all the bars and, and equipment and stuff west side barbell is in central ohio elite fts is in central ohio uh so if you're into lifting and boy was i central ohio is the place to be yes um all right so i think that does it for this episode of the stronger by science podcast like i said we've got one more this season then we're going to take our little summer break uh as always thank you for joining us and we'll see you soon Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. 
You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.